Good morning. Scripture passage today comes from 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you're reading out of a blue pew Bible, it's on page 255. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Second Samuel 2. And after this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Anoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul and your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and and valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Azurites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. Carl got the tough reading assignment this morning. Read some of those Old Testament names. You know, we were talking earlier to say, just read confidently. Nobody knows how to pronounce them. And they'll go, oh, that's how you say that word, that name. What if a visitor dropped by your house last Tuesday night? A visitor who didn't know anything about American politics. And together you watched the Democratic debate. And he said, hey, can you explain to me what's going on? He doesn't know any of the names, he doesn't know any of the people, he doesn't know any of the history, but he's just watching, and he's saying, well, why are, why are these people on the stage? What are they so energized and exercised about? What's a Democrat? What's a Republican? What's a Socialist? Why, why are they pointing out the flaws in each other? Is that the whole point of it? Why are they pointing out the flaws of somebody named Donald Trump? He's not even on the stage. How would you, how would you begin to answer some of those questions? You'd probably just say, man, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated because there's just so many. You ha, where do you start? There's so much history behind each thing that just as soon as you say one thing, there's a whole story you have to explain just to, to, to get to what a Republican is or what a Democrat is. So much momentum behind these things, so, much, uh, so many unseen forces. And then there's the, the real desire for these people, I believe, that they want to help. 
And then in the heart of every man or woman is desire for power. Desire for control. To, to make things, to make a country in the way that they think is best fit. How do you explain that momentum? How do you explain those motives? How do you explain those desires? Well, it's complicated. This morning, we're dropping into a similar situation, and we are the visitor. Trying to explain all the power and politics that are clogging up chapters 2 through 5 in 2 Samuel is complicated. There's so many unfamiliar names. There's Lots of momentum behind these stories that we can't possibly unpack. There's lots of uh, diverging motives for power, for political uh, persuasion, for personal control. Some things that we do know is chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 5, verse 5, spans seven years. If you look with me in chapter 2, verse 1, after this, David inquired of the Lord... Shall I go up to any of the cities in Judah? And the Lord said, Go up to, do, do go up and go up to uh, Hebron, a town in Judah. And so then in verse 4, men came from Judah, this territory, or you might think like a county. There's 12 territories, 12 counties that make up Israel. And in this one named Judah, they anoint David king in verse 4. Saul just has died, David is beginning his reign. And he's reigning over one of the 12 territories named Judah. And about this time, David's 30 years old. If you look with me in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, at Hebron, or verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. So David's 30, he reigns till he's 70. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and then he moves his reign to the capital city of Jerusalem, where he reigns over, notice, all Israel in Judah for 33 years. In between chapters 2 and chapters 5 is a, a gritty, messy, bloody political power and control. And this is the road God uses to establish David as the king. So this morning, I want to try to do two things. I want to try to establish a framework of what's happening, especially in the beginning here of chapter 2. And then I just want to point out, maybe examine a little bit of this grittiness that happens and try to answer the question, why is this even in the Bible? So let's see if we can do that in turn and make it less complicated. First of all, this first point a framework. I'm calling this Kingdoms and Conflict. Kingdoms and Conflict. This is the passage that Carl read for us. Uh, what we're supposed to notice here in these verses is that there are two kingdoms being established, two rival kingdoms. One of the kingdoms is built by God. That's David. He's the king that God has chosen to, to establish not only this kingship, but he's going to be the king or his throne is going to reign forever. And then there's a rival kingdom built by man. And this, this little scene here is a scene that happens over and over again in the Bible. Two kingdoms being established. And whenever God's trying to establish his kingdom somewhere, you can bet there's going to be a rival kingdom. And this starts in Genesis. It goes all the way through the Bible. It even extends into today. 
And first of all, we notice God's kingdom being established by David or through David. This is verses 1 through 4. David had been anointed king by Samuel, if you remember, way back, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Remember, Saul was for Saul. And God said, hey, I'm going to find a man after my own heart. And David goes and finds, or Samuel goes and finds David. So now Saul is dead and David's ready to be king. And notice in verse 1, the very first thing David does. What does he do? He spent 10 years in a cave. And what is he doing right now? Very first thing, he prays. It's a great first step. Very first thing he does is he looks to the Lord and say, look, I'm coming out of a cave. I'm coming out of a, a dark time and I need your help. I need your direction. And you're supposed to contrast this with a few chapters before at the end of 1 Samuel where Saul is consulting a witch for direction. And so here, David, great first step. And this is the intended posture for everybody who lives inside the kingdom of God is to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, which direction do you want to have me go today? This would be a great little practice for 40 days in Lent, the season that we're in right now. Just to say, hey, after I wake up, which for many of us feels like coming out of a cave, and you just say, before I turn on my phone, before I turn on any music, before I consult a newspaper or turn on the television or turn on my computer, before I look at my calendar and see all the things I've got to do, and I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but before I do any of those things, just try this for 40 days. Lord, this is your day. And you've gotten me up to live into your day. What do you want me to do? What, what do you want my eyes open to today as I encounter my family at the breakfast table, as I encounter uh, the people in my business, as I walk out and see my neighbor? Where, where is it that you want me to go? How is it do you want me to live this day for you? This is what David does. This is part of making David a man after God's own heart. Proverbs 16.9 says this, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. So again, a great little practice to say, God, I, I'm planning my course. I mean, most of us can't wake up and just say, I'm just going to figure it out today. You have some kind of calendar. You're going to get up and go to work. You're going to do these things at work. You're going to be somewhere at 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the evening. You've got all that planned out. And you're saying, Lord, here's what I'm planning. This is my course, but I, I need you to determine my steps. And so what are the first steps that God asked David to do? Well, I want you to go up. Should I go up to Judah? Yes. Which town should I go up to? Go up to Hebron. And so David is established as the king here in this one little town in one of the 12 territories in the southern area of Israel. Now, you're supposed to notice that. David's the king. He's been waiting for this moment. The kingdom of God is going to be established through David, not just at this moment, but even into the end of time. And how does it get established? It gets established by David living in a small town in the hill country of Judah, and he's reigning just over one little territory. 
He's not riding into the big city and everybody rising up and saying, here's the king and now I'm the king over all of Israel. No, I need you to go to this little town, Hebron. I need you to be king there. You're going to stay there for seven years and be king just in this one area, just in this one territory before anything else happens. This is a tremendously significant biblical moment but it begins in a very small way. This kingdom of God, it's not impressive. It's not overwhelming in its start. And isn't that just how the kingdom of God works? It just starts out in some small way. I mean, compared to all the other things that are happening that look big and flashy and powerful and meaningful, the kingdom of God, like a a little seed, just comes in and gets planted almost unnoticeable. It happens all through the Bible. Jesus, the King of kings, He enters His own world and nobody would have noticed unless God would have called, if God didn't call His own press conference. He's in a little town called Bethlehem. It's not in the capital city. It's not in some place, a lot of fanfare. Nobody would even know if the angels hadn't said anything. It starts in a very small way. Jesus, when he comes and he's teaching about the kingdom of God in Mark chapter 4, what shall we compare the kingdom of God to? What would you think he might say? Okay, I'm trying to explain the kingdom of God. And he's searching, he's just standing out, looking at the people. He's looking for an analogy and he says, oh, it's like, you know what he says? A mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when you plant it, after some time, it grows to be the biggest of all plants. See, see this planting of the kingdom of God, this beginning of the kingdom of God, it's always starting in some small, unimpressive way. I don't know if you remember the book of Daniel. So Daniel is a person who can interpret visions and dreams of people. And this one king has a vision about a series of kingdoms. And I want to read this passage to you because this is really encompassing all the kingdoms of the world. It's found in chapter chapter 3 of uh, Daniel. And it says, You saw, O king, so this is Daniel speaking to the king, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold, its chest and arms were silver, its middle and thighs were bronze, its legs were iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked at it, as you looked at this exceedingly bright, frightening image, a stone, a small stone, not cut by human hands, struck the image on its feet. And the whole image came down in broken pieces. This small little kingdom of God, beautiful description, a stone not cut by human hands. It's going to come in and take out all this flashy power that's happening in the world. And that's going to be the kingdom of God. This is exactly how God works. And one of the many ways this should be helpful to us is that we're, I hate to tell you, we're not very flashy. We're not very powerful. 
I mean, compared to all the power in the world, the little Wilmington, North Carolina, little Christ Community Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. But if we can be like a stone uncut by human hands, a little seed that gets planted, that over time, God could use in tremendous ways. When I went to India and talked to the pastors there, I thought about this this week because Donald Trump goes to, went to India. You probably saw it on the news. And did you see just hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets in a huge stadium? And it was just a massive display of these two leaders who had so much power. And whatever you may think of them, they were impressive. The power behind these two men massively impressive the country that probably has the most people in it india and the country with the most wealth and military power america they're standing on the stage together and you know what i thought of these tiny little mustard seeds of men and women in alpha ministry just being planted one at a time around that nation and one day all of this power is coming down. And the kingdom of God will never end. And so you may feel that today, like I'm nothing, I'm not noticed, I'm not feeling like I'm doing anything. That's exactly how God starts all of his work. And it's happening right here with David. But there is a rival kingdom that's being set up. And we saw it in verses 8 9 and 10. And the key character here is the very first word, Abner. Abner, he's setting up a rival kingdom. He's a political powerhouse. He's a military commander. And he, Abner is for Abner. He's a lot like Saul. He wants to be in control. He knows that God has promised the kingdom to David. He knows this. But he doesn't want to follow after David. He doesn't want David to be the leader. He wants to be the leader. But he can't be the leader. He has to get some kind of puppet king to be the leader from Saul's house because that's the way it worked back then. So Abner knew, hey, there's this son, Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, kind of fun to sound, but you spit a little bit when you say it. Ishbosheth. He's kind of a weak leader. And, and Abner knows if I get this guy to sort of stand up, I'm going to be like the puppet master. He's going to be the face, and he's got the name, but I've got the power. So Abner sets up a rival kingdom against David. Now, Abner, he's got all the 11 territories underneath his power. David only has one. Abner's hunger for personal power. Abner's hunger for personal power is always a key character trait of a rival kingdom. Anyone coming with a hunger for personal power, personal control, you know they're fighting that rival kingdom. Abner can't claim the crown himself, so he sets up he sets up this Ishbosheth character. He sets up a rival kingdom, and I want you to know these rival kingdoms again, it's a theme that we see throughout the Bible. In every generation, every person, even in this room, will have to choose which kingdom do I follow. 
Do I follow the kingdom of God or do I follow the kingdom of man? Joshua, famous last words, choose this day whom you will serve, whether God's your father served, see the rival kingdoms, or uh, the, the, the land of the Amorites, the, the land that you're dwelling in. But as for me, what does he say? In my house, we're going to serve the Lord. There are rival kingdoms. I see those rival kingdoms. They came from your forefathers. They're happening right here in this land. And there's a rival kingdom. And you've got to choose which way you want to go. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Money sets itself up so often as a rival kingdom. It promises, it promises power. It promises control. It, it keeps uh, things at bay because you can pay off in some form and it feels like it's going to produce something real, but it's a rival kingdom. Stephen Hawking, he's quoted on the front of your bulletin, this famous theoretical physicist, cosmologist, author, who are the lords of the universe? We are. That's the rival kingdom. Who controls the universe? We do. The rival kingdom has many faces. In 2 Samuel, the face is Abner. In Genesis chapter 3, the face is a snake. In Matthew chapter 4, the face is a dollar bill. Anything that sets itself up in your heart as the most important thing other than God, that's the rival kingdom. And I wonder, just for, could it take a moment, could you identify the rival kingdom in your life? What's the thing? What's the person? What's the activity? What's the need that sets itself up and you feel it? Every day it pulls at you like, this is real life. This is the way you should go. That's, that's the rival kingdom. It's very possible you could identify that rival kingdom and look and see that it's you. It's actually not a thing, it's me. Abner would have said what Stephen Hawking said. I am the Lord of the universe. Sandwiched in between these two rival kingdoms, you're supposed to see this. So that you wouldn't see it in the first reading, but if you're a pastor and you study all week, then you see these kinds of things. So I'm just pointing out this out to you, but somebody helped me see it this week, so I'm helping you see it. In between these two rival, rival kingdoms is this another group. They're, called, they're a group of men. They're soldiers from Jabesh, Jabesh Gilead. You see that? Five, six, seven. Jabesh Gilead were, was a territory, one of these 12 territories. They were very fiercely loyal to Saul. Saul had died, and they went and got Saul's body, and they buried Saul, and they're returning home. And David is informing them of something. We know Saul has died, and now I'm the new king. And you need to choose. Are you going to go after Saul's house and Abner? Or are you going to go after me, David, the true king? 
You see how that choice is set up? It's set up for Jabesh Gilead. It's set up for you this morning. There's always two rival kingdoms, and, and today's a day you get to choose. Which one are you going to serve? Now, it's a little bit of a cliffhanger because the text doesn't say. The main question I have for us this morning is, what about you? So we have a choice this morning, especially with communion. And I want you to think about it. Because if you come forward, you're saying, I'm choosing this king and this kingdom. I like that we step out and come forward because you're saying, I am choosing to step away from that rival kingdom. I feel its passion. It, it pulled me in. It sucked me in even this week. But I'm, I'm going to say no to that rival kingdom. And I'm going to say yes again to the true king and the true kingdom. That's chapter 2. That's the framework of what's happening in these three chapters. David's beginning in a small way to set up his kingdom that's going to eventually in chapter 5 land us in Jerusalem where he's king over everything. But there's always a rival kingdom. And we are Jabesh Gilead. Which kingdom are we going to choose? Now I want to finish here with this second point, which I'm calling the complicated, messy road God uses to move history towards himself. It should be an easier little bullet point to write down, but that's as easy as I could make it. That when you read three, four, three and four, it's complicated. This is like trying to explain the political situation in America. Somebody doesn't know anything about it. So many motives, so, many, so much history happening here. And God is on this gritty road. It sometimes seems like he ought to be on another road, but this is the road he's chosen to, to run on with humanity. And so I just want us to think about this road. There's no test at the end before you leave, so no need to take notes. But first of all, I want you to notice here, chapter 3, verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Again, chapter 3, verse 1. And David was growing stronger and stronger. And the house of Saul, this is Ishbosheth and Abner behind, they are becoming weaker and weaker. And I want you to observe, as the writer says, here's how David's house is getting stronger and stronger. Verse 2. And many sons were born to David. This is a way of strengthening your house at Hebron. His first, and I'm not going to read all these names because they're complicated. But first is Ammon, and, and he has one mother. The second, Chileab, he has a different mother named Abigail. Then the third son, Absalom, he has a different mother. And his mother came from a different kingdom. Then verse 4, there's a fourth son, Adonijah, and he has a different mother. Then there's a fifth son and a sixth son. They both have different mothers. Now, what's shocking about this? This is David. This is David, the man after God's own heart. This is the one who's going to start a kingdom that's never going to end. This is the guy God is choosing to use. And it's shocking. David is abusing God's design for marriage 
as a way to satisfy his own political power. And you just want to say, how in the world does this happen? We know polygamy is against God's will. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 19. We also know it's against God's will, especially for the king, because Moses talks about it in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. And yet David sows these seeds right here, right here in the very beginning, these seeds of disobedience. He's unable to tame his desires, whether they be for power or for pleasure. And these little seeds that he can't tame right here in the beginning of his kingdom, it's going to eat up his soul. It's going to eat up his family. It's going to swallow the whole nation practically. Right here in chapter 2 or chapter 3, David starts a small stream which eventually carves a great canyon in his soul. It's a sober warning that I don't have time to talk about, but I want you to think about. Anybody right now this week starting a small stream? It's, it's not a big deal, Paul. Got it under control. Nobody really notices. Looks good from the outside, maybe. Stop anytime. You might be starting a small stream right now that in 25 or 50 years could swallow your whole life, could swallow your family. David's first step in chapter 2 is prayer. David's second step in chapter 3 is polygamy. You feel that tension? I'm just going to let it sit there. Second, to David, we have Abner. Abner. Abner is for Abner. And notice in chapter 3, verse 6, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong. Now somehow, Saul, house of Saul, it's going down, but Abner, he's growing strong. He's taking all the resources for himself. He's making sure he's okay, even though nobody around him is okay. And here's where it gets complicated. So let me just mention a few things that happen here and we'll come to a conclusion. Abner is a military commander in Saul's house. Again, you don't have to remember all this. Joab is the military commander in David's house. And in these chapters, Abner kills Joab's brother. Secondly, as Abner's power grows, Ishbosheth, the king who's out front, gets nervous about it. Abner explodes in anger. And he says, Okay, Ishbosheth, you're going down, buddy. And I'm going to take all the military power and go over to David's side. I'm going to make sure you go down because you question me. Abner, we find out, is not interested in supporting David. He's going over there and he's hoping he's going to get a prime place of power in David's kingdom because he's going to bring so many resources into David. And David actually cuts a deal with Abner. Then Joab, his military commander, finds out and he explodes. 
How in the world could you cut a deal with the other side, especially this guy who killed my brother? Well, David says, it's okay. I think things are going to go work out. Abner secretly, or or Joab secretly asks Abner to come back to, to Hebron. And while he does, he stabs him in the back and kills him. See, it's complicated. And God uses this gritty road to establish David as the king. And so I'm asking myself, and maybe you're asking yourself, why is this in the Bible? What are we supposed to learn from all this political drama and power struggle? And how, how might you answer that question? Two thoughts I have as we close. First, David's uncontrollable desires... Abner's uncontrollable hunger for power. Joab's lack of control over his own jealous heart and his anger actually is still alive today. No surprise to anybody here. Paul Tripp, who we saw earlier, he says this in his commentary about this passage. I'm always touched, not by how unusual this passage is, but how shockingly usual it is. How it presents a picture of our own struggle. See, when Paul trips, looks at this, he says, oh, I see this every day. The lust for power, uncontrollable desires, jealousy, anger. I see this every day coming through my own heart and through, coming through the hearts of other people. So I'm not shocked by this. This is the, the ground of the world that I live in right now. And so maybe how many of us have started out this week in prayer and ended up in porn? How many of us started out in prayer but ended up manipulating people? How many started out in prayer and we snap at breakfast in anger, jealousy, rage? How many started out in prayer but yet they see that one person? And they feel this volcano begin to rise. It turns out the rival kingdoms, they're not out there. They're in here. The rival kingdoms are fighting desperately. Bitter battle for territory in your own soul. That's one reason it's in here. Second reason I would say is to help us remember no human effort, no human sin, no matter how terrible it is, can thwart God's kingdom. There is nothing we can do to thwart God's kingdom. He will have his king. He will have it in the time that he is predestined to have it, and it will take place apart from anything that happens in humanity, positively or negatively. He's going to have a kingdom, and the gates of hell cannot prevent it from happening. Even if the king of kings comes to earth and we crucify that king, he's going to establish a kingdom. He has the power to overcome all of our sin. No matter how grotesque it is in the midst of trying to manipulate things, even inside the church, somehow God's using that gritty road to say, I'm going to have my king at my time and nothing can stop it. That's great news. 
that's great news that somehow his kingdom being established isn't resting on Paul Phillips. Oh, if it was, what a terrible chance we'd have of making it happen. His kingdom isn't resting on you. His kingdom is resting on the king of kings who can defeat death itself. And that's the gritty road he uses to say, no matter how gritty the road is right now for you, he's in control. No matter how many times you've screwed up and you think, I've lost it. God can't use me. God can't move forward. God is moving forward even in those moments. And so we see this gritty road and helps us have some kind of hope in our own gritty road. And so we all walk down a gritty road this morning. It would have been great if I could have put gravel here, but I don't think the deacons would have liked that. No saint walks down the aisle today. No saint, just sinners. Myself included. Start in prayer, end up somewhere. What are you thinking, Paul? It's a gritty road. But it's a road that comes to the king of kings who's in complete control. And what you're saying is, I know my gritty soul. I'm reminded today, I'm saying again today to myself, to the Lord and to each other. I'm letting go of the rival kingdom. I want to follow the king. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning as David's, Abner's, and Joab's. And we come to Jesus, who on the night he was betrayed, his disciples were arguing over who was going to be the greatest. And in the midst of that, you take the wine and the bread and say, I'm, I'm giving up my life for these lives so that they have hope. Would you take these common elements and use them for uncommon purposes, for people who want to be in your kingdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the ushers will come and usher you by row. If you're someone who is the king of kings, you come forward and be encouraged.